Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I don't know whether you've heard of the name Carol Fabritius, but I am sure that you know his work, or at least one of his works, The Goldfinch chained forever to its perch, looking out at you who won't free him. It was famous well before Donatart's novel of 2013 brought it again to public attention. It is a masterpiece by a genius artist. Carol Fabritius, born in late February 1622, in one of the worst winters the Netherlands had ever seen during the Little Ice Age. And what is often said of Fabritius is that he was taught by Rembrandt and taught Vermeer, that almost everything he painted was destroyed in the Delft explosion of 1654, and that the artist himself was killed by it. He certainly did die in that freak accident, but much of the rest of this is myth, as we'll learn today from my guest. My guest is Laura Cumming. She's the chief art critic of The Observer, and her three previous books were A Face to the World on Self-Portraits, The Vanishing Man in Pursuit of Velasquez, which won the James Tate Black Biography Prize, and On Chapel Sands, My Mother and Other Missing Persons, which was a Sunday Times bestseller and shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford, Costa Biography and Rathbone's Folio Prizes. As one of the judges for the Costa Biography that year, I can attest to how brilliant it was. She also has come on this podcast before, when we just launched to talk about Velasquez. And today we're discussing her new book, Thunderclap, a memoir of art and life and sudden death, which is in part a memoir about her father, an artist himself, which also explores Carol Fabricius and the golden age of Dutch art. It might be helpful for you to know that the subjects we cover today include infant mortality and suicide. coming welcome back to not just the tudors you were one of the very very first episodes and we talked about velasquez and we talked about las meninas and anyone who hasn't heard that must go back and so i'm absolutely delighted to welcome you back to talk about a different country of art if not a different age a different country, but actually the same century. And at least one of the extraordinary things to me about Velasquez is that there he is painting in Spain at the same time that all these wonderful Dutch painters are grafting away in freezing conditions to make these marvellous paintings, which we all know and love because they're all over the world. 
Yes, so the 17th century in the Netherlands is the most extraordinary time of painting. The quantity is extraordinary, the market is huge. Why do you think that was? It is the most unprecedented era, I think, in the history of art. And I'm including in that even today in, for example, this country where we had the most saturated market imaginable and every second person in Hoxton is a painter or an artist. But this is just unique. Art proliferated in the New Dutch Republic as I think nowhere else and as never before. The estimates at the moment are between 1.3 and 1.4 million paintings produced by 600 and 700 painters roughly in not quite two decades at the middle of the century. Simon Sharma, for example, estimates higher, and I've even seen figures of 8 million. And this is just staggering. Everybody's being painted, and everything is being painted. It's what I describe in the book as a picture world, as no other picture world. We have accounts from diaries, for example, John Evelyn, the English diarist. There he is in the Netherlands in the early 17th century, and he sees paintings not just being sold in the studios of artists, but even in markets outdoors in The Hague at one point. And he doesn't actually say what he's seen, alas, but there are also contemporary Dutch accounts in which paintings are being sold on stalls that actually depict what you might see in reality on the stalls next to them, peaches or two herrings on a plate and so on. And it isn't just that people want to see the world that they can see pictured, it's that they want to see themselves pictured. So this is the great burgeoning age of the portrait. Unbelievable. Everybody is being painted from the blacksmith to the orthopedic surgeon, from the writer to the calligrapher to the man who sells the herrings, in fact. And there are numerous stories of artists being hired to paint the husband and the wife in a double portrait and then their children. Sometimes these images show six children and the dog and the horse and they're all in a meadow with a laden apple tree that they've been growing and they're rather proud of in the background. So there is the world of what is visible and real and is being recorded and then there is also of course the world of the imagination. I absolutely love it. It's the most democratic art. It is everywhere on earth and we are able to enter into this age through these images as no other period or time in history. And people have been a bit sniffy about Golden Age Dutch art, haven't they? They've taken it for granted, they've dismissed it. You've got Sir Joshua Reynolds amongst them kind of saying, uh, it's all just stuff, it's objects, it doesn't have any great moral or spiritual substance. But you can't get enough of it. So why is that? And why have people dismissed it? Yes, you're absolutely right. Reynolds is very funny. He goes on this trip and he's taken to actual private collections. For example, he sees Rembrandt's in a house on the Amstel Canal and writes about and so on. And he complains a lot. I saw multiple paintings by the man who paints swans and another one who paints white satin. And he thinks that all they're doing is appealing directly to the eye. And it's a theme taken up later on by Henry James, who goes on his tour around the Netherlands and complains bitterly that it isn't speaking to the heart enough. And he says the milkmaid in the painting is like the milkmaid in reality. One could walk into the other. It's all like a reflection in a Dutch canal. It's like a sort of photograph and so on. But I 
absolutely don't agree with this. And my book is in part a sort of campaign against the idea that these paintings are effectively documents or photographs, as they've often been described. The other line on them is that they're all emblematic and everything in them is a sign of death or mortality or something. But I absolutely love it. It's so all-embracing. It's so infinite in its reach through everything that is seen and experienced, but also everything that's imagined and everything that we might feel from these sort of wonderful, optimistic images of gusting ships and bright canals, but also to the girl who is spellbound by the letter in a painting by Vermeer, the husband and wife of the Jewish bride by Rembrandt. What an absolutely unbelievable portrait of domestic love between two people, never surpassed, I don't think, by any other artist. And part of what I'm trying to write about in this book is that even, for example, Vermeer, when we're looking at a huge, magnificent painting that's supposed to be topographic, the view of Delft, which listeners will all immediately be able to picture, the buildings have been moved. The scene is set, it's showing a devastated Delft. There's been this terrible explosion only two or three years before this painting is embarked upon, which has taken out a quarter of Delft. And what we're seeing is the other side, the bright side of town, where apparently nothing has ever happened, nothing's ever gone wrong. And I've always been very taken by the little figures at the bottom of that great painting by Vermeer. What a masterpiece. And like our surrogates, they're standing looking at this view across this amazingly silent, steady water. And I've always thought they look a bit like figures landing on a moon, almost, in awe and wonder of what they're looking at. And in the book, I've also written about Proust's love of this painting. It was for him the greatest painting ever painted. And he was stunned when he saw it, which he did in the Netherlands on a trip. And again, right at the end of his life, he was stunned to find that the whole surface of that painting is covered in these things called Pointillés, tiny little extra dabs that stand proud of the surface, that twinkle with their own light and send light back into the painting. It's not just a photograph. And that absolutely speaks to this sense that these people dismissing it have got it all wrong. And it's not just a photograph, but another painting that does is the one that you start your book with, a painting called, with almost philistine literalism, A View of Delft. <laughs> can you tell me about it? What it tells you about the artist? Yes, I can. And it's, I love the way you say philistine literalism, because at least part of this surprise of this era for modern people such as me is that titles hadn't been invented. So when we call that painting stumpingly a view of Delft, and indeed the painting's been retitled slightly only last year by the National Gallery in London where it hangs, with a view of a music seller's stall, as if that's what the painting was about. And the painting we're talking about is a tiny little painting, very lonely, I always think. It hangs in a side room in the National Gallery. People walk right past it. I can't believe they do. It's by Carol Fabricius. And what it shows is a scene with the atmosphere of a memory, as I say in the book, or a kind of waking dream. And it, what it shows is a man sitting on the left-hand side of the painting in deep shadow. It's the corner of two streets. And he's got his thumb to his chin and his fingers crooked. I always think he looks like he's just smoking a roll up. <laughs> and he's waiting for something to happen. And the reason the painting meant so much to me when I first saw it in my early 20s, when I first arrived in London, was because as people of that age and lonely people, I was very solitary when I first arrived, didn't know anyone. I identified with him. He was waiting for life to start. And he's sitting next to him is a lute and a viola on a table. So obviously maybe he is trying to sell these instruments or perhaps he's made them who knows but that doesn't seem to me the point of the picture he's on the dark side of the street and the painting 
moves away from him across a little tiny delft bridge into the sunny side of town which is where we see the kirk and the shops and little houses and trees growing and it's a kind of quiet day very cobbled brilliant painting of the classic dutch sky with a bit of blue with these heavy steady pressurizing clouds above and the leaves of the elm trees are just beginning to turn and so on and it's a painting i feel always about waiting and hoping why are there no other people in the painting who's going to come will anyone buy it and over one side is delft with all of its pleasures but that's not really what the painting is about it seems to me to be about the interior life he almost looks like a sort of german romantic figure but this is way before this is right back in the middle of the 17th century And one thing I'm struck by is the fact that this is one of a number of masterpieces by Fabricius, and yet he's not as famous as some of the names that we associate with the Dutch Golden Age, Vermeer and Rembrandt and even Franz Hals. And I wonder if part of the reason is because there is no other painting by him like this. His art is so varied. Each work is a departure. And also that there are so few that survive, perhaps. Is that why you think we don't all know his name as we should? Exactly. His name, for example, is exquisitely lettered onto the wall behind the man who's sitting there. See Fabricius 1652. It's a most touching signature insofar as it's supposed to be a bit of graffiti on a wall. It's something that Vermeer, I think, learns from Fabricius. All of the paintings have these beautiful signatures in them, and so you'd think we might have paid more attention. No, because most of these signatures were not seen or visible until the 20th century when cleaning began to happen. And this very elusive name, literally, as well as metaphorically, was buried. So yes, exactly right, Susanna, there are maybe 13 works. There was a show of his art at the turn of the 20th century, and I have certainly heard it said that some of the people who were at this show nearly came blow to blows over whether or not two of the paintings were by him or weren't. So if you think that show had maybe 13 paintings in it and two people were fit to bust furious with each other about whether two of them were by him you may be looking at a dozen certain paintings now he's painting this little by contrast with all these other painters he starts painting i think around about the age of 17 and he dies very suddenly at the age of 32 that's barely a painting a year at a time when other painters from this era are painting hundreds, if not thousands of paintings. Some painters are leaving two or 300 paintings in one year. So that's one thing about him that made me want to write the book was to find out why did he paint so little? It is commonly thought that the reason he painted so little is because his paintings were destroyed in this terrible explosion called the thunderclap which gives the title to the book which occurred on the 12th of october 1654 huge explosion in delft a clerk went downstairs to check some black gunpowder left over from wars with spain that was underground and nobody quite knows what happened was he carrying a lantern what set it off but certainly he was atomized completely no there was no trace of him afterwards and a huge 
chunk of Delft was hit. And the house in which our painter, Carol Fabricius, is working that day just collapsed completely with him in it. So people have always said, oh, the reason there are so few paintings by us is because they were destroyed in the thunderclap. But this is a really a nonsense because some of his greatest paintings were painted long before he even got to Delft. And he was quite clearly a genius, I think. So he was selling paintings. There are traces of paintings that have disappeared. One of his most famous works, which I'm afraid also goes up in flames, is a large painting of a family, life-size, and often written about. And some people even saw it in the 19th century. It was hanging in a museum, the Boyman's Museum in Rotterdam. And then there was a fire there, a terrible disaster, and that painting disappeared. So it isn't that he just painted a whole lot of pictures and kept them all to himself and they were destroyed in the thunderclap. So that was obviously a fallacy and I wanted to find out why he had painted so few paintings and you rightly say that they are all staggeringly different. So they've all been attributed to other painters, some to Rembrandt, others to German painters, others to followers of Rembrandt and so on. And one of the paintings in this book, which is in Schwerin in Germany, and this is an extraordinary painting of another figure sitting, solitary, pensive, melancholy, with their back to the wall, just like this first painting we've been talking about. It was the first painting, I think, that ever really made his name because it was plundered by Napoleon during an assault on Schwerin when the city was taken siege. And this painting was lugged back in a tarpaulin in a cart all the way back to Paris. And it was put in the Musée Napoleon, as the Louvre was obsequiously named in those days. And the French public came to see this and they thought it was tremendous. This is the early 19th century. So people thought he was just fantastic. But who was he? Were there any other paintings by him? None. There was nothing with which it could be compared. Not until the end of the century when the goldfinch, the painting for which he's best known, finally comes into view at the Moritzhus in The Hague. Let's talk a little bit about who he was. You mentioned that he came to Delft after having been somewhere else. So let's talk a bit about his birth, family and childhood and his name and I want to say, I find it very moving that his father was also a painter who could only paint in scraps of time, but he had three sons who did it full time. I found that such a moving detail. I know. Isn't it wonderful? I mean, literally, he is a Sunday painter. He's the essence of that phrase. So Carol Fabricius is born in Middenbeemster. This is about 17 kilometres north of Amsterdam, and it's a newly poldered land. And I found it absolutely thrilling to go there and see it because the people who created the land from the water laid it out in a grid. And this grid became the model for the city of Manhattan later on, which I love. And there are these wonderful early drawings and maps of it from 1606 when it was poldered. And you can see exactly how the street plan of New York could come to be based on it. So anyone listening to this can immediately picture these long streets. The streets are actually not full of houses. They are long streets that divide up little farms and little farm holdings and so on. And in the middle of all this, they start to build a place called Midden Beamster. And our man, Carol Fabricius' father, is the first person to go there as the new schoolmaster. There are probably about 20 houses at this point, and they're working on the church, and the church is rising gradually during the childhood of Carol Fabricius, and they live in the schoolhouse, and the schoolhouse is right next to the church, so they're all going to church in this place every week, and a little bit more of it's being built every week, and he is a painter, so Dutch this. There are so many wonderful documents, everything is meticulously 
kept the ordering of knowledge and information and the historical record and so on. So there's a fantastic and very humble appeal written by Carol Hobbish's father asking the burghers of the parish if he could have a little bit of time off to do some painting and they say, oh, rather grudging, but only if you never let it interfere with your duties as the schoolmaster at the new school or as the sexton at the new church. So you can imagine how busy this guy is. Anyway, I think he must be the first teacher of Carol Fabricius and the only known work that I can find by Carol Fabricius's father is actually touchingly in the church and of the church. So it is a little panel on wood, quite rudimentary, one might say, showing this church rising up with a couple of rather awkward-looking heavyweight angels above it in the sky. And I found it very moving to see that painting because, of course, so many Dutch Reformed churches, it's very bare, very Spartan white church, very like the Kirk Church of Scotland where I was brought up, a very bare church, but with this one painting of the building with its very tall spire that you could see like a tin tack miles across the landscape. So this is his background. This is where he's born and raised. And there's nothing at all about him, not a thing, from the moment that he's born to his sudden arrival next door of a new minister. And I think, although I've got completely early, we're talking about a century at least, almost two, before Jane Austen, I feel I can picture this scene this way. So a man comes to be the vicar at the church, the new parson, and Tobias Veltus, Veltusius, he signs himself everywhere in a Latin form. And he comes with his unmarried sister, where this is going, and they come to live at the church and they have little parsonage next door and Carol Fabricius meets Ancha who is the vicar's sister and a romance occurs and in no time at all the bands are being read in the church and they're getting married and I think it's slightly I wish I wasn't saying this to you Susanna and your listeners but I think it's probably a shotgun wedding because I'm fairly certain that the next set of babies all get born quite fast. Anyway, Carol Fabricius' mm-hmm. father has started also to Latinize his name and his name is Fabricius. Actually, that's not his original name. His original name is Peter Carls and he starts to sign himself thus in this extraordinarily beautiful, large, heavy, very grave ledger which is the register of births and deaths and marriages and all of these little lives in this frozen, freezing chunk of countryside north of Amsterdam. This beautiful book is now in the poetically titled Waterland Archive, which is a little town not far away from Midden Beemster, and it records in it the first, I think, of my clues as to why he doesn't paint very much. Tell me what that clue is. What I think is this. He marries, he's 18, he goes from Midden Beemster to Amsterdam, His new wife has connections in the city amongst silk merchants. There's a bit of money and he starts to paint and we know that he worked in the studio of Rembrandt. So this is going to be a time when he's got a rather great opportunity for his future there and the first child is born and then the first child dies. And in this beautiful record is the name. In fact, it's not even named, just the record of the child's death and the fact that it is in the graveyard here and it's a very young child. And then another child is born and this child dies and then another child is born and this child dies. And my guess is the last two are possibly twins, I'm not sure, but certainly 
his wife also dies and he's just turned 21 and everybody's dead. So he has a beautiful little burgeoning family and then they are all gone one by one and they're all buried. And the children are all there buried in the graveyard in Middenbeemster in this church. And he goes home and again there is not a word about him for several more years. And my sense, and I am not basing this upon any document, I'm basing this on a work of art. My sense is that he's completely paralysed with grief and there certainly are a couple of legal contracts are drawn up about the fact that he's got no money and what's he going to do. The Reverend Veltusius, back in Midden Beamster, makes him sign a very strict document saying that if he makes any money, then it's all got to go to the surviving child. The surviving child, in fact, dies before even the ink on the documents is dry. And then he doesn't paint. Except that five years later comes this to me absolutely shatteringly contemporary self-portrait this is also in the Boyman's Museum which shows yes. Carol Fabricius as a very young man and it's just an extraordinary thing he's a very big painting and he appears very low down in the painting just his head and shoulders and it's a very wintry painting filled with sorrow and it's also an extraordinarily ambitious painting it uses colour almost as I don't think colour is used until the 20th century. The mouse, for example, is painted in red, pink, green, brown, white and blue. You can see the individual colours. It's the most brilliant piece of work. And it reverses the sort of conventional format of the Rembrandt self-portrait, which, of course, had become a brand. So people actually wanted to buy paintings that were either a Rembrandt self-portrait or looked like a Rembrandt self-portrait. So that would be a kind of figure in the gloaming with a lot of golden tawny light, quite dark. And what happens in this painting is the light is just allowed right in and you're seeing a person with the shutters wide open in daylight. And so that's itself quite a shock. But also so is this very diffident, shy, paralysed looking figure who is full of, I think, grief. And I've described him in the book as having an amazing brush mark under one eye. Just a white burden like snow on a bough under this eye. And he's growing up in the little ice age. It's freezing cold outside. And my sense is also that his heart is full of snow. I had such a strange reaction to this picture, partly because of the way that you tell your stories, you unravel them. And so you show us in your book his self-portrait and then tell us about what had happened. And then we sort of see it again, see it differently. And when I first saw it, it did seem shy, but it also seemed strangely sensuous. I mean, you've got these dark eyes and these forelips and quite an unusual glimpse of hair on his yes. chest. Yes. Then you say, he suffered all this grief and then suddenly the sorrow seems self-evident. It's a really interesting mix and it completely belies that idea that Dutch art is not full of heart. Oh, so much. And if you see the painting, which is now, again, for the very first time, it is now about to go back on show in the Boymans in Rotterdam, which has been closed for several years. But anybody listening to this who happens to get the chance to stand in front of it, you've just described, I think, brilliantly the other pool of the painting. And I had only ever seen this when I was growing up as a slide in an art history class and I really felt, <laughs> I felt quite, quite smitten 
with him. He's tremendously <laughs> handsome. And when the book was going through the press, the editor was terribly attracted by him and had a photograph of him on her desk. <laughs> and yes, there is also that, that he clearly was really something to look at, I think. And so the tide's going in two directions with the painting. On the one hand, you and I can see that he's really markedly handsome. Rembrandt clearly wasn't old potato nose, as John Berger called him. What we're drawn to in any Rembrandt is going to be a thousand different nuances of emotion, but it isn't going to be that you're struck dumb by his beauty. <laughs> Whereas I think with Fabricius Stephanie, I certainly felt what you feel. And I've often wondered there's a very shadowy, but very contemporary looking figure in a painting by Carol Fabricius that was only recently discovered which is in America, the 20th century, and it's called Hagar and the Angel. And on the one side, you see an angel, and the angel is absolutely bona fide Rembrandt studio angel. So there's a lot of tawny glow, and the angel looks like a lot of angels, actually, in paintings by Rembrandt and his pupils from that time. But on the other side of the painting is Hagar, and Hagar is sitting full of grief, and she's rather a handsome woman with a very intelligent face and she's painted in a completely different style which is this new style I think of Fabricius and uh, I've described it in the book in a way as a sort of schizophrenic painting because it seems so divided between the teacher and how he taught Rembrandt and the life and what he's seeing Fabricius so I find that a fantastic painting and once again it goes to what we were talking about which is the question of whether or not Dutch art does anything other than paint the cheese as it looked on the dish yes it does I'm Eleanor Yanaga, and I'm thrilled to be joining Matt Lewis to co-present Gone Medieval from History Hit. Twice a week, every week, we set out to answer the big questions that have vexed people for centuries. Like, what did the Romans ever do for us? Roads, buildings, walls, churches, houses, manuscripts. Why did Edward I mourn his Queen Eleanor so much? He was very good at making a show for people to see that was going to influence how they would understand him or his campaigns or anything like that. Did Viking hero Ragnar Lothbrok really exist? Maybe yes, maybe no. The sons who were attributed to him were definitely real people. So join me, Eleanor Yanaga, And me, Matt Lewis, for Gone Medieval from History Hit. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Let's talk about that connection between Fabricius and Rembrandt because the self-portrait emerges during Fabricius's time in Rembrandt's workshop. And one enduring myth about Fabricius is that it is contact with Rembrandt that sparks his artistic genius into life. But you make it very clear in this book that it is more complicated than that. Can you talk about his earliest known painting and the ways in which it both refutes Rembrandt as an originator of Fabricius's talent and also confirms his influence? Yes, I think the only evidence that we have, apart from the paintings themselves, we've just talked about Hagar and the angel, and the angel is very definitely a Rembrandt angel. So yes, there's no question that he's working there and that he's painting things in the studio, which are doubtless influenced very much by the context of Rembrandt's studio, the Rembrandt was in Amsterdam that we can all still go to. But the evidence is Samuel van Hoogstraten who is a painter of many things, but mostly optical illusions. And people listening may have seen his most famous work, which is called A Peep Show, which is in London, where you put your eye to a hole and look in and you can see a Dutch house and various scenes going on. And it's an amazing piece of sort of trompe l'oeil. And Hoogstraten, who wrote a rather pompous book, testifying to all of the Dutch artists he's known and all his theories about art and so on, it's very much based upon Italian Renaissance models like Vasari and so on. And he's there at the same time. They briefly overlap in this place. And Hoogstraten is a much younger pupil. And he says that there was the great Carol Fabricius later to die. And Carol Fabricius supposedly addresses a question to Hoogstraten and says, how are we to know whether an artist is going to be any good even when he's very young? A very unpersuasive question he's putting into the mouth of the great Fabricius, who's several years older and very unlikely to ask this question, but it allows Hoogstraten to go on and on about what makes a great artist. But that's it. But it is true he was there. The moment in which that conversation takes place, it definitely happens in that building at that time with Rembrandt in the background. But my contention is that if you look at, for example, a painting like the self-portrait we've just been discussing, or really almost anything, I think, from this point in his life, it's so obviously so great that he cannot just be arriving age sort of 19 as an apprentice learning how to sharpen his pencils. He's already completely brilliant at painting. So I feel it's much more likely that the reason he marries the vicar's daughter next door is because he's actually met her in Amsterdam, which is where she's been living. And I think he has too. I think he probably was a boy apprentice, maybe with Rembrandt. It's hard to know, but whatever his actual time in that studio, it was very expensive for the parents of an apprentice to have their 
child effectively educated by Rembrandt cost a lot of money. I don't really know how long he's likely to have been there when he was younger, before he started working for Rembrandt. So my own contention is that he's just really prodigious and precocious, and he's probably only there for about a year, and he's already just a great painter, fully formed. And he gets very far away from Rembrandt really quite fast. As the paintings go on, you start to see them moving into effectively another era. Although there is that magnificent portrait of Abraham de Potter from 1649, which you say was first thought to be a Rembrandt. Yes. Poor old Fabricius. Everybody thinks everything's a Rembrandt, even when it's so patently doesn't even look like a Rembrandt. And this is a painting by Fabricius. And probably I think it's the point at which he thaws out of his grief. And maybe the land he's in literally also thaws out because the Ice Age, Little Ice Age, that's taken the area by a terrible frozen storm. I think it begins to thaw too. And the person he's painting, Abraham de Potter, is a silk merchant also in Amsterdam. You can start to think of connections for yourself easily. How does he know people? How does he get to know Rembrandt? And Abraham de Potter is his father's old friend and he's an art collector and he loves art and he draws himself. And I absolutely worship this painting. It shows a man in deep thought, very beautifully dressed as a brushwork is very capable of recording the exquisitely expensive silks of a man who sells silk. So a very beautiful cartwheel rough. But it's not painted in the way that Rembrandt paints. It is enormously more calligraphic and light. And the colour that's coming into it, as I was saying earlier about the face of Fabricius, the colour that's coming into it is extraordinarily unusual. And there are tiny marks in it that a wisp of an eyelash or a tiny curl of a moustache and so on that are so refined they make me think more almost of Japanese painting. And it says Abraham de Potter's name and Carol Fabricius's name all written on the wall. I imagine you're hearing the pattern here. All of these paintings he makes are of people with their backs to a wall, really. And again, it's written an exquisite painting of a mottled plaster wall. And the wall is so beautifully painted. I've said in the book, it's more beautiful than any wall. And again, unbelievable range of colours have gone into the light moving across this damp plaster and so on. And for years and years, the signature and Abraham de Potter's and everything was concealed by filth, centuries of smoke and dirt and pollution. And eventually somebody cleaned it. And the first time they cleaned it was around about, I think, 1920. And the person who cleaned it thought that they had seen mystical images in the marks and numbers and all kinds of things. And then later in the century, they clean it again. This is at the end of the 20th century. And there revealed is the wonderful name C. Fabricius again on a wall. You can sense that this is the era. You can see that Abraham de Potter is a Dutch burger and a black and white and man of great prowess. But there's a wonderful modernity. My father was a painter and he went to see these paintings to study them. And I have his notebook and he's written exactly what I think, which is Abraham de Potter, modern eyes. Very remarkable painting of the eyes. You mentioned there your father, and this book is in part a memoir of your father. And it's also a study of the Dutch Golden Age more generally. And there are far more people and stories than we can talk about today. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about one theme of the book, which is that there are so many painters who are so talented, but who are in circumstances of poverty 
or disability or both, or on the verge of destitution. And of course, this situation, being in debt, is also true of Fabricius. We've got him in Delft in the 1650s, and there's evidence of him also experiencing financial difficulties. And I want to just address one particular ongoing myth about him that as you do in the book, which is that he represents a kind of missing link at this point between Rembrandt and Vermeer, who is in Delft at the same time. What can we say, if anything, about the relationship, if any, between Fabricius and Vermeer? You're absolutely right. Our painter is bereaved, but eventually he marries again, and the person he marries comes from Delft. She's part of a family of artists, in fact, and he goes to live in Delft. And we have quite a lot of information about his time in Delft, simply because he's in debt, as you say. So there are lots of documents saying that he owed bar bill here, or he had to renew his debt with so-and-so. This is common. There are practically no Dutch artists, certainly not in this particular book and generally there are very few Dutch artists who are not in debt. Debt is just endemic for art. Everybody knows of course that Rembrandt will go bankrupt. Vermeer suffers terrible poverty. He dies owing and he dies poor and his widow left a pleading letter to the burghers of Delft asking for patience with the repayment of loans and so on. So he arrives in Delft nearly wed and he goes to live with his wife's family on the Oude Delft which is a long street that runs right through the city, tiny city, so not a very long street. And he paints people, does various paintings for people in the street. And he paints the painting we're talking about, a view of Delft. He paints self-portrait. He paints, of course, the goldfinch is where it was painted in Delft. And he's getting into some work. And I think it's beginning possibly to pick up, though he's not making any money. And the Uda Delft is a canal about two and a half streets and one bridge away from the Market Square, which is where Vermeer is growing up. He's younger, a few years younger. And to me, there is certainly no evidence whatsoever that Fabricius ever met Vermeer or taught Vermeer or anything. There is no written evidence. Vermeer was an art dealer, an extraordinarily refined understanding and appreciation of the paintings of other people, quite apart from his own incredible gifts. And we know that he looked at the art of Peter de Hoog, who is also in Delft at this time. And we know that he looked at the art of Fabricius, definitely because he owned three paintings by Carol Fabricius. These paintings are mentioned in the inventory of Jan Vermeer's house after he dies at the age of 42. And the three paintings are hanging, one in the hall, and two in the great room upstairs. And the whole house is full of paintings. Vermeer had a lot of paintings. He was trying to sell them in part. But I think his absolute respect for Fabricius is apparent in the fact that he names Fabricius. These other painters, there's no information about them at all. It just says a cow down by a river or a tree or whatever. But with Fabricius, it's a head by Fabricius or it's a tronier portrait by Fabricius, supposedly of an anonymous person, I wonder. And then there is a large painting by Fabricius. And I felt very strongly on looking at The Little Street, that great work. Again, a very calm, delft, beautiful street of women working, sitting outside a large house on the canal by Vermeer, which people may have seen in Amsterdam, where it hangs in the Rijksmuseum, or perhaps at the recent show that there's just closed there. And the woman sitting in the doorway of that wonderful, tranquil, unutterably beautiful painting, who is stitching away in a white cap. She's sitting in a doorway and behind her is 
a dark hallway and it's thought to be the house of Vermeer's aunt but it is also very like the house in which Vermeer is supposed to have lived. We're never very absolutely sure exactly what that building was and I have always in my mind whenever I look at the painting quite apart from all the standing ways in which that painting rises so high in one's spirits and one's mind. There's also for me always this feeling that if I could just get past the woman sitting in the doorway, I could see the Fabricius painting hanging in the hall. (laughs) And so there's a very direct connection in that respect. The purported connection is the fact that there is so much light in a Vermeer. Now, I think myself it would be to overstate Fabricius's relationship with Vermeer just in terms of light, because I think there is more light in his art than there is in the natural world. And it's a different thing, a completely incredible. But there is definitely this very strong sense that he's looked at someone who isn't painting heavy, dark paintings like Rembrandt. So I suppose, though, I don't think Rembrandt necessarily teaches Fabricius very much, and I'm not very sure that Fabricius teaches Vermeer very much, there is definitely a link between these three painters. We come then to the Goldfinch, which, as you say, is the most famous of Fabricius's paintings. And this is painted in 1654. Tell us about this and let us return also to the thunderclap which of course is going to be the moment that brings about Fabricius's death. Yes the goldfinch beautiful you come across it hanging in the Moritzus it's very sudden there is this fragile remarkable mortal being that appears to have just alighted on that perch until you notice of course that it has this cruel little chain which is keeping it there tethered in front of you and it can never fly away. And again, it's a painting of a sorrowful figure. I mean, I resist the idea that one would say it was a self-portrait by other means because I think that's just cheap, really. But he has fellow feeling with the bird. There isn't any doubt about it. And it just appears flashing that look at you. And I've always felt when you see it, almost a standoff of the moment in which you see it, you think, don't move too fast in case it flies away and yet it's also not a straightforward trompe-l'oeil painting which is what it's always praised for it looks so like a real bird you can see every stroke of it it presents itself as a work of art before it presents itself as a bird you can see c fabricius 1654 exquisitely painted on it it's a vignette it hangs in space their little perch appears like a tiny miniature opera box I always think and the bird is on it and shadows are cast and so on but the whole thing is floating in front of you like a sort of vision a painted vision essentially and fundamentally a great piece of actual painting the use of colour and brushwork on a in this case a panel of wood and if you look for example at the thing that makes it signally a goldfinch which is this amazing stroke of aureolin yellow, tin yellow, as it was called in those days, no longer made because it's poisonous. And this wonderful swipe of yellow gold. If you go close to it, you'll see that it casts a shadow inside the actual brushwork of the painting because it's so thick. And it's just an awesome painting and it's intensely moving. I think I have read people talking about it as being more moving than a Rembrandt. And I certainly find it astounding to look at and deeply stirring. And it's very small and it tells us a lot about the painter. What we know about it is that he worked 
hard and changed it and changed it and that he was very thrifty is made of a piece of used wood and we can see the joinery that he worked on it to try to make it a usable piece of wood and how he shifted the bird around and how he changed his name and how much more light he put into it it's all there and it's there because a wonderful danish conservator called jorgen Baden, who cleaned the painting and he did it in public over a period of two years in a glass box in the well of the Moritzhus. He put it through, and it's the first time in history this has ever been done, he put it through a CT scan as if it was a human body and from it was able to tell all this sort of underlying work that this mind of Fabricius had put into making the object so strong and so beautiful. So it has a sort of forensic history that I've written about in the book. We won't talk more about that just now because that brings its own surprises, I hope, for a reader. But he's painting it in 1654. In October, he will die. During the course of that year, he paints three masterpieces. And the third one is the self-portrait, which is hanging in the National Gallery in London. It's always a miracle to me to think we have two of these paintings in London. Incredible. And here he is again. He's got a bit more money. He's wearing a fur hat and a breastplate. And he's standing a bit taller and more of him in the painting. But again, he looks very diffident, I think. And he is standing now outside against the sky which is quite a rare thing in a 17th century self-portraits they practically never are painted outside i can hardly think of any some in italy but certainly not really in the netherlands and the sky is smoky and it's almost impossible to look at it without thinking it's a bit portentous because what is going to happen of course is that this man is going to be engulfed effectively in smoke we don't know exactly which months these paintings were made but one thing we do know about for example, the goldfinch, is that he's working very slowly on it. And oil paint takes a long time to dry. And so my sense is that he's probably been working on the goldfinch all through that year. And he owes money. Just before he dies, he's promising money and he says that he will pay it within weeks. And there's an exact date given. And before that date comes, he will be dead. Another casualty of the thunderclap. Your book about Fabricius is intensely moving. I am a big fan of your books. I love them very much. Every single one so far has been a great experience. And you have given us a sense in today's podcast of the life of this man and of his genius. But I do urge my listeners to pick up a copy of Thunderclap, a memoir of art and life and sudden death, because it is intensely moving and there's so much we haven't had a chance to say today that I think that you would enjoy. I have enjoyed this conversation very much, Laura. Thank you so much for coming on to Not Just the Tudors again. Thank you for your extremely kind words and your wonderful questions. It's been my pleasure. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen including on spotify it really helps more people find not just the tutors
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.